the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwinninger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a lovely five-star review, and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take back in the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers or our AI masters. Hey, Matt, do you know it's a well-known fact that FBI spends more time vetting their sanitation technicians than they do their InfraGuard members? Well, to be honest, the sanitation technicians have access to more sensitive... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, is is it areas or information everything's data well certainly uh the paperwork they deal with is uh (laughs) of less use the uh first article we have to talk about is aws strains to make simple storage service not so simple to screw up from Uh, the register surprise zing uh Could have been funnier, but not bad. Yeah, yeah. Before David and I got together to talk about this episode, I attempted to use ChatGPT to create summaries for each of the articles we're talking about today. Two of them came out okay, but fairly high level. Uh, We're talking about a little bit of ransomware later, and it just gave a very high level summary about ransomware in general. But the AWS Simple Storage Service S3 one was completely wrong. It did not summarize this article at all. It went way off into left field and gave me a summary of a completely different S3 feature called S3 replication time control, which specifies the exact time objects should be replicated between S3 storage classes. So uh, for those of you that are using your chat GPT for your business reports or your school reports, uh, definitely proofread them before you hand them in. Uh, I should go back and look at that article to see if there were links to other articles about that time Oh, thing in I there. didn't do that. And maybe just... if it picks up tech, because if it just reads the whole page and doesn't isn't able to distinguish the article from other text on the page, yeah, uh, it could have just included that uh, because it didn't realize. I uh, yeah, that that I was did do I did do a control F for replication. I figured that was a pretty rare word, and that did not show up anywhere on the page. Uh, oh. But if it was reading the links as well, I could definitely maybe it did link off like in a related article, right. And I block so much stuff that everything on this page is probably not what the AI would see. So <laughs> it sees all the ads and it's going crazy. Um, I'm sorry. But it's... anyway, so the article that we're talking about here is, as everyone's well aware, uh, S3 has been in the bane of many of an existence uh, due to the nature <laughs> of the security around keeping uh, hackers and just passersby actually out of S3. Um, so, uh, Amazon has decided to attempt to make that, um, well, simpler, I guess. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so Amazon, uh, 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 even, not, and the, the thing we're talking about now actually, uh, is not even supposed to be released until April. Um, but, uh, up until this point, AWS has said that S3 buckets are private by default. Uh, and yet it doesn't seem to entirely work out that way. Yeah. I've been seeing for years. I, I could have sworn like several years ago, they were like to prevent this type of thing from happening again, we're going to make everything private. So you don't have to worry about it, but it still keeps happening. And I'm not sure if people are messing up that badly or 
Um, we'll get into a minute about uh, a theory that I have, which may or may not be accurate for what the, what the problem is, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but in 2018, uh, AWS added S3 block public access, uh, which uh, allowed you to block public access through the S3 management console. Uh, in November 2021, they added the S3 object ownership setting that allowed you to disable ACLs. Uh, but apparently there are at least five ways uh, for you to manage S3 bucket access. Yeah, and then this one just like cuts you through all that so that this one just allows you to disable it no matter how you granted access. So it's a little confusing. And and these ways of cutting through are already in place in the S3 management console, uh, but they will apply to all new buckets that have been regardless of their method of creation, which includes APIs, SDKs, or the AWS cloud formation. And it seems like the permission sets did not apply default based on the way that it was created. Uh, so it seems like if AWS had actually had a default setting and regardless of your method of S3 bucket creation applied that default setting, then we would not be in the boat we're in now, uh, which is why they have to finally actually make that change, which is what this appears to be doing. Uh, so uh, sure, they would default by by or they were secure by default if you use the S3 management console. But if you use these other methods, uh, it seems like the permission sets were not default to secure. That's the impression I, I understood from reading this article anyway. Uh, the point that I thought was most interesting about this was that at least at one point in time, there were five different policies slash ACLs to grant access to your S3 bucket. That seems like a horrible way to secure something like you've got three or four of them correct, but you missed the one that you didn't know about. And now your bucket is public. Well, I think that what is also seems to be unclear about it as well is that there's five different ways. Uh, what's the hierarchy uh, so mm, that, you know, yeah. whether the um, one gets applied versus another, you know, because if one says it's secure, one says not. Uh, why does the unsecure one get applied versus the secure one? What's the hierarchy? It's almost like, you know, what's the ACLs for um, those that permission set? Um, but this is coming out in April. In the meantime, um, double check your S3 permissions to ensure, and, and use your, your S3 management console, double check your permissions to ensure that you've got your S3 buckets uh, tightened down. And if you readily use or often use these other methods, uh, you should probably validate whatever their default settings are and see if you can alter those default settings yourself um, to ensure that they are secure by uh, by design when you deploy them. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, the, uh, the headline makes more sense now. Simple, very simple. Yeah, it's one, one method to rule them all. All right, so for our second article, Royal Ransomware puts novel spend on encryption tactics. The chat GPT summary for this was a lovely high-level summary of ransomware in general. It actually did not talk at all about what makes this group special. It does it did it did mention that it's using a novel encryption tactic. Yeah, but it didn't say what it was. Um no, but I'm wondering if the if that if the chatbot was or whatever you want to call this, the uh, the AI gear was really just picked out keywords and then 
use those keywords in order to put some kind of summary in here. So, you know, ransomware, um, you know, unique encryption or, or novel encryption and avoid detection. You know, if you just like took a couple of those things and said, okay, let's just make up something around those words uh, and create a summary there. Cause it really doesn't summarize the article per se, but if I were to say, it's almost like whose line is it anyway, or what's my show. line? Yeah, whose line is it anyway? Uh, where you know each person gets one thing, and then they try to build a story around uh, mm -hmm. you know three different things that each individual uh, uh, comic yeah. got. Uh, I think that's kind of what these summaries sound like to me. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm actually looking at it in more detail. It mentions that it was delivered through phishing email. And I just searched for phishing in the article and phishing is not mentioned at all. It actually specifically says that it deploys through a variety of methods. So phishing is probably one of them, but that's not mentioned here. It mentions it delivers a rootkit. Rootkit does not show up in the article anywhere. Uh, so it's definitely ad-libbing. It's like you said, like that previous one where it got all the S3 stuff wrong. It grabbed like AWS and S3 and then grabbed a whole bunch of other data about that from somewhere else too. All right. So whatever it was trained on, it pulled stuff out of its training. Yeah. Uh, and then threw that in there. Said, oh, I know this article is about ransomware. This is what I already know about ransomware. Yep. And then put it in there. So the actual summary, a relatively new ransomware group has knocked Lockbit from their top spot just two months since they started using their own crypto, which ransomware is a little bit differently. Uh, it looks like it encrypts it by only encrypting a set percentage of the file rather than the entire file or a, or a static, uh, amount. Uh, so yeah. some of the other ransomwares that don't do full file encryption, they will, regardless of the file size, they will do, you know, X number of bytes or something like that of the file. Uh, instead this ransomware seems to give you a slider that says, Hey, I want you to ransomware up to this amount and any file that's, Smaller than five megs gets the whole shebang encrypted. So it does not appear that the group uses affiliates through ransomware as a service or to target a specific sector or country. Uh, uses multiple threads to accelerate the encryption process. Good on them for being effective and efficient. Yeah, so they use this. This uh, I think this uh, uh, the uh, they use an API call called Get Native Sim Sim System Info. Uh, once they find out how many cores are on the box, uh, then they double that number, and that's how many threads they spin off uh, in order to do uh, the encryption. You know, if only game developers were so inventive. <laughs> so, uh, as David mentioned a minute ago, Royal Ransomware lets the operator choose a specific percentage to and lower the amount of encrypted data regardless of file size, unless the file is less than 5.24 megabytes, in which case the whole file is encrypted. There's a bit of interesting spot there. That is the same as what the Conti used, uh, Conti group used in the past. Pure coincidence. Pure coincidence. Uh, it can't possibly be the same folks. Well, it could so, also be that there's something about 5.2 megs as well, that that simply is the standard. Binary or something? Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just completely speculating, obviously. Uh, because I don't run a ransomware room, so I can't say that, you know, there's some kind of tipping point where it makes sense to encrypt anything below that or above it. And there's some mathematical reason for that. I don't know. Uh, I'm just saying like that stuff something, that seems... Uh, sounds like something that, a ransomware crew would say. Uh, yeah. 
um, by Carl's Jr. So that is 63,897.6 bits. So yeah, that doesn't seem like a like a round number and anything. Although maybe it's yeah. I don't know, maybe they did some testing and that was the fastest, like that still kept the files mostly inaccessible. Right. It, it, like I said, there there could be something about the way that ransomware crews operate that's kind of a standard or uniformity across the oh. uh, uh across the gangs to say that this is optimal for speed and yeah. uh usability and everything like that. Wonder if there's like a lot of Windows system files or something that are that size. Or maybe they found that most uh, office files are five megs is pretty decent size. Like I wonder if most office files are less than that. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, I'm speculating. Uh, so the low percentage of encrypted file content that results lowers the chance of being detected by anti-ransomware solutions. That's interesting. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. Um, we know what kind of method anti-ransomware solutions are using in order to detect ransomware. Because uh, one thing I've actually thought about might would be a a reasonable method, I think, is at least based on my understanding of what the way most ransomware works is, uh, they do the file encryption and then they change the file with a different extension on it. Uh, wow. So if you had something that was watching the system for a mass number of uh, extension changes to all the same extension, you know, you could trigger that as, hey, this is might be ransomware and you should kill the threat or whatever. Hmm. But I don't know. I would think that if it were something that simple, then uh, someone would have done that already. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So why does this matter? Well, these crews are getting a lot of experience and they are working on speeding up and making it more efficient because they want to improve their customer. Wait, no, that's not what they want to improve. <laughs> uh. Well, improve their own success, right? They don't really have customers per se. But um, hmm. uh, uh, this just speaks to and the number of things that matt and i have talked about on uh on the podcast before about ransomware and the crews and um to put rather than i don't have a better way to put it other than the professionalism of these guys from a business standpoint is you can expect that these kind of innovations uh if you want to call it that to continually happen until we're able to find some way to definitively purge the world of ransomware uh, where they're going to get better, faster, and more difficult to stop. Yep. And, you know, the thing is, they talk about people not paying, and this just thought just popped into my head. Imagine you're a ransomware crew, right? And you have probably the best ransomware out there. Um, and ransomware as a money-making opportunity just basically is going away uh, because no one will pay. Not that you can't get stuff encrypted or... You can't get into networks or whatever, but just no one will pay your ransomware. So the ability to make money from ransomware is stopping. You know, you uh, there might be uh, crews out there that just do this for destruction reasons and don't even bother with keys anymore just to burn stuff down. Uh, kind of as a, oh, you won't let me make a living doing this anymore? Okay, well, I'm just going to mm -hmm. destroy stuff then. Kind of out of frustration or spite. I don't know. We'll see. Because uh, I assume, well, I would like to think that somewhere, someday we will get there where we're actually able to stop these guys from, from doing their ransomware. Uh, I don't know what that looks like today, but um, I'm optimistic that it is possible to do it. I really wish the U.S. vendors would get on the ball, though. 
Yeah. It's, uh, we're going to need chat GPT to come in and save us. All right. Well, certainly the GPT, uh, uh, chat GPT would do a better job than the FBI. Which brings us to the next article, which is the FBI cyber security program for critical infrastructure was hacked. Uh, And this comes comes to us from Gizmodo. Uh, So Matt ran this through the chat program um, and it came up with the wrong method of entry, uh, which said that uh, it was caused by fish, which was not true. Yeah, that's the same thing that it did about the other one. Like it just really is really focused on phishing. Well, cybersecurity and phishing go hand in glove, so <laughs> or hand in puppet, depending <laughs> on your perspective. I could go somewhere else with that, but I'll stop there. Uh, but the method that was actually used to to uh, compromise InfraGuard was uh, someone posed as a corporate financial uh, uh, executive, a CEO, and applied for a membership with InfraGuard using uh, the details about that executive. And in three weeks, they got uh, their membership, and then they use a Python script and in, uh, built-in InfraGuard APIs to dump the the member database. You know, you said you're going to probably going to say this later, but you said something about how they weren't actually a programmer; they got somebody else to do it. They could have gotten ChatGPT to do it. <laughs> Maybe that was their friend. You don't know this guy's social standing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he considers Chat uh, GPT to be a friend. Uh, I'm, I'm based on their their guidelines, it probably won't say mean things to you. So probably he's not a bad friend. Uh, but apparently the level of vetting for uh, InfraGuard membership is uh, pretty non-existent. Uh, they take you at your word, it seems like, uh, when you say you are who you say you are, uh, and then grant you access. Now, the attacker said that when he made submitted his application, um... InfraGuard said it's going to take three months before you get your membership back. Um, but instead, he got it back in three weeks. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, if they said it was going to be three months, why did they say it's going to take three months? And then why did it only take three weeks? Because if they're doing any kind of vetting, that's pretty crappy. Uh, I mean, number one, he, he was the the what he provided was very superficial. Uh, He didn't do a whole lot of research or anything on the CEO to cover his bases. He didn't even give them um, an email that he had stolen from the CEO. He gave them a different email that wasn't even managed by that person uh, to, for the, for the uh, application. So I'm not sure what took them three weeks or what was expected to take them three months, but it certainly is not a whole lot of vetting uh, for someone who applies for a InfraGuard membership. Uh, but this dude, because he had someone else write the code form, is not even a hacker. Um, maybe he's a social engineer, uh, you know, like uh, Mitnick, um, but uh, certainly not a lot of technical skills. Otherwise, he could, I mean, writing a script to, to access an API. Uh, not really rocket science. Not you don't have to be a super duper scripter to do it. <laughs> so uh, his level of understanding is pretty minimal. Ridiculous. Um, so a, a lot of information on the uh, the in the article says that you know well the what he got from this was not a big deal. 
Uh, but if you go to the linked article on Krebs, they mentioned something that did make a whole lot of sense is that uh, getting that list of people in InfraGuard and then leveraging InfraGuard to contact them um, allows them to get greater access to people than they otherwise would have through what would be seen as a trusted third party. Uh, so, you know, if I, if I say I'm the CEO of Citigroup, I contact Matt through InfraGuard and say, hey, you know, I'd like to talk about this or I'd like this kind of information from you. Then Matt looks at that saying, oh, well, this must be the CEO from um, Citigroup because he's contacting me through InfraGuards who certainly vetted that he is who he says he is. And I trust the FBI. Um, so he's going to assume that this is all legit on the up and up and, and have less reservations about providing the information the attacker's asking for. Uh, so in that aspect, that is pretty dangerous, I think. And also, um, the sale for the database went on the dark web. I think he was asking for $50,000, which he, uh, <laughs> even he said was overpriced. He was just waiting for someone to talk him down. Um, but that sale went up on the 10th. And as of the 13th, at least, the attacker still had access to the InfraGuard infrastructure. Well, I mean, nobody informed the FBI. They had no external notification. Well, actually, they did because Krebs told them and the FBI said, <laughs> oh, we're looking into it. I'm surprised they didn't say we have top men working on it. Top men. Top <laughs> men. And one of the one of the things that they, the attacker was concerned about was once he got his account set up, the InfraGuard said, well, you have to use multi-factor authentication. And he's like, oh, man, I actually used the guy's legit phone number. Uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> And of course, the FBI said, oh, don't worry about it. You can use email for two-factor, which is awesome uh, because the only method for two-factor is SMS or email, not even a time-based token uh, for setting that up. Um, so, I mean, all around, you can see, well, at least from my perspective, the FBI is a bunch of jokers. <laughs> this is, you know, just as poorly run as any other government program. Yeah. And if you expect them to keep your, you know, to ensure your security, then I think you're, you're in dire straits. And now that this is a known thing, this is one we know about because this guy decided to sell this. But if there, there could be innumerable other, because this is a, a database of thousands of people, mm -hmm. how, who knows how many illegitimate folks are actually still in there. Uh, simply doing what we talked about a moment ago, where they're using this as a staging platform in order to contact people to start setting up other hacks. Well, um, I mean, we could always buy the database and then we could do the vetting ourselves. Sure. We we can print money just like the FBI. Mm -hmm. Be easy to spend that amount of time doing it. Uh, well, one would hope, and this is, I will hold my breath though, that the FBI takes this and says, oh, now we do have to do legit vetting on the, the other members. Um, but I'd be skeptical that they bother even going back retrospectively and saying, are we sure all these people are who they say they are and doing any kind of level of due diligence there? Yeah, I actually have an InfraGuard membership, although I haven't used it in forever. I have gotten no notification from them that my, uh, <laughs> my stuff was involved in this. <laughs> Oh, so they didn't even notify anybody, yes. Uh, not that... Hold on, let me check. 
Yeah, this is the account. It's page. probably an InfraGuard message. You got to log into InfraGuard to get it. Well, that's part of why I stopped using it was it was a pain in the butt to use. I never felt like I got anything worthwhile out of it, but that was years ago. Well, so when you applied for your membership, who'd you say you were? Uh, David Schwinniger. <laughs> and they let you in? <laughs> Holy cow. No, this is back. Yeah, this is years ago. You know what would have been great is if they managed to break into the InfraGuard website and drop a Trojan off the website. That would have been classic. Oh, so anybody logging in would would get the Trojan? Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that would be good. But, you know, considering that guy can't write his own scripts, you know, he's certainly not the, not going to do that. Yeah, this was purely a, a social engineering thing. Right. All right. So our last article is new ransomware payment scheme targets executives and telemedicine. And this is from Krebs. Ah, Krebs. All right. So the chat GPT summary of this one discusses uh, the new ransomware scheme. Um, it does not mention the insider trading. It talks about they're going to impersonate the victims and any requests for money or sensitive information to colleagues or associates. I don't think that was part of the actual article, was it? Mm, no. So none of these summaries were accurate, although two of them were good enough that my initial read of them, I thought they were good high-level summaries, but not a single one of them has been accurate in the details. Yes. Yeah. well... Maybe it'll get better when it when it uh, when it grows up. There's only been released so the, in the wild since it's November. It's a child. So. so the actual summary: company called Hold Security got access to the Venus Group's member discussions, and apparently they're getting into lots and lots of companies. But those companies aren't paying. Uh, so I guess the 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 government's plan to getting companies to stop paying is working out, or maybe nobody trusts the Venus Group. I don't know. So apparently they've started a new tactic and they're discussing how to edit executives' email inboxes to implicate the executives in insider trading. Klopp is having the opposite problem. They're having difficulty finding victims, which I find interesting. Uh, so they've created a new technique where they are now concealing malware in ultrasound images or medical paperwork and sending it to doctors. Genius. I mean, it's like it's like sending resumes to HR folks, right? Like they got to open them. I don't, I don't know. Cause if a random, if a doctor gets a random ultrasound and be like, Oh, sure. I'm going to look at Bob's ultrasound. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's there's like, they got to be expecting that. Or you would think they, they would be expecting it before they would open something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You might be right. Uh, but of course, doctors could be quick on everything. Download, worry about the trouble later. I don't know. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but from now on, if you're implicated in insider trading, you've got something to blame it on. Uh, they even in the chat took into account forensics, looking at where and when the files were created and were sharing methods to copy the files in, in such a way that they would not appear like, you know, everything on this box was created on July 1st, 2020. This file was created on August 2nd, 2022. Uh, getting around that. Right. So the lesson there is, Whenever you come across something like this where someone is uh, blackmailing you or saying, hey, there's forensics evidence on your box that uh, you're doing insider training, so you need to pay us. Uh, first thing you should do then is immediately start insider training. Because <laughs> uh, then when the cops come to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a victim here. These yeah. guys were just threatening to say that I, got, I was just, uh, doing insider training. 
Yeah. And I don't understand how this, how they actually get paid because all this really does is this gives companies a get out of jail free card for actual insider trading. Uh, cause they, they insert the data, they email the company saying, Hey, uh, we found out you're doing, well, I guess they don't mention the fact that they inserted or the ransomware part. They just have to email them saying, we found right. out you're doing insider threat, insider trading. And then when they go look it up, they'll find the evidence. I'll be like, oh shit, John was doing insider trading. We better fire him. So I guess they're hoping that they won't fire the executive and then they can blackmail them because they could just fire the executive and then be like, yeah, well, he was insider training. Sorry. See ya. Well, I think but they, um, there's, a, there's an issue there with public perception of the company then saying that, well, mm -hmm. they didn't have control, proper controls in place in order to prevent the insider training from happening or something like that. Because mm -hmm. um, in the article, it says that they that, that while they, they adjust the times and everything to, to consider forensics, um, their tactics aren't don't escape forensics or they're not sound enough in, in order to legitimately uh, indicate that from a forensic standpoint that the insider training was taking place. So under real scrutiny from a actual forensics investigator, um, you would be able to tell that this is not the insider training artifacts that they claim or evidence would not stand up scrutiny. Hmm. Yeah, or maybe uh, so I think because uh, what I think they're hoping on here is uh, to be able to lever, uh, level the threat, and if someone doesn't follow through or whatever, they they tip off. Um, a journalist or a reporter who isn't going to have that level of access to the forensics in order to be sure. So that on the surface, it would look like it was legitimate insider trading and they released that information and they um, caused the company stock price to go down or whatever impact the company by releasing that evidence. I think that's what they're banking on. Yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, although also they could be ransomwareing the or ransoming the individuals planting it in somebody's and being like, we have evidence that you did this. And they're like, I didn't do it. And they're like, we don't care. We have evidence that you did do it. Um, right. And hoping that they won't seek help. Yeah. Cause they're going to feel that they're between a rock and a hard place saying, well, I didn't do it, but they have manipulated the mm. computer in this wizardy way to uh, <laughs> make it look like I did. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that. So but yeah, they can't they can't do it in the way that you typically typically when you ransomware a company, you go, hey, I did this uh pay me to get rid of it because if you go to them and you say hey i inserted i i have, I have framed you <laughs> then they're just gonna be like well all right we're gonna go to the fbi and tell them you framed us right <laughs> yeah and actually i think we talked about this a few months ago too about uh um some computer in india right um where someone had been arrested um yeah, and they it, claimed that the evidence was planted on their computer yeah, there have been a couple of those. I don't remember which one we talked about, but yeah, I've seen a couple of those. And uh, people that get caught with um, inappropriate, uh, illegal, uh, I don't want to say anything because I want to get us blacklisted, um, photographs right. Photographs uh, typically use that as an excuse. Somebody must have hacked it and put it on my computer. Right. Um, so the other aspect of the uh, the COP uh, group using the, the medical files uh, is pretty interesting. Um, but what I thought was the the uh, takeaway here from this one, and this is a quote from the Krebs article, 
Um, they initially discussed going in with cardiovascular eye issues, but decided cirrhosis or fibrosis of the liver would be more likely to be diagnosed remotely from existing test results and scans. Uh, I think that's a that's an interesting indicator to show that these guys are serious and they do their research and just aren't guessing before they initiate these kind of attack campaigns. Uh, so they actually looked into say, okay, well, how do you get these diagnoses? What kind of data is transmitted? How's it transmitted? And came to the conclusion that uh, this, uh, the cirrhosis or fibrosis of the liver would be the most likely ones that would be conducted in a way where you would do this via email or whatever. Uh, so I think that's pretty uh, telling about that these guys are just not kids in their basement or something like that. They're serious about their th what they see as their job. Uh, and I kind of wonder if they actually have like a team or they have someone on their on their staff that they tag to do this kind of research and, hey, we want to do this kind of campaign. What kind of data element should we use or what should be the impetus or the type of atta attachments that they would expect to see or something like that? Yeah. I think attacking doctors using medical supplies is kind of gross, but yeah. Yeah. So. Well, criminals are, aren't really, uh, known for their, uh, empathy or, you know, morality. There's a yeah. yeah. There are reasons that they're, they're criminals and not, uh, you know, working at, uh, I am shocked. Squad. Shocked. I tell you. So, uh, why does this matter? Well, there's just some new things to look for when you're compromised. Uh, what other naughtiness can an attacker do if they focus more on emails and documents as opposed to just ransomware and the whole thing? So, and this is kind of a conundrum because there's so many ways that an attacker can damage you once they compromise a system or account. And the business never gives you, wants to give you enough time. They want, the business always wants you to wipe the box, rebuild it, and get the user back in and working and then move on to the next one. So there's rarely enough time to do a complete workup of each one. So I think uh, what I would probably do for this one is add this as an exercise in your tabletops because I'm sure you do those regularly, of course, like quarterly. Of course. Uh, uh, but something else that uh, we were reminded about in this article that we've also talked about in the past before is to test your backups and understand the volume of data you're talking about when you when you have to do a restoration. Um, so if your critical systems are ransomware and you do have legitimate backups, what's it actually look like to do that restoration? Uh, is that going to take a day, a, two days, a month, three months, uh, a quarter, you know, how long is it actually going to take to do that, that data restoration? And, you know, a lot of, uh, BCDR plans are based around, um, standard problems of, Hey, what happens if our main data center goes down or things along that nature? Maybe, uh, you should have a BCDR scenario, which is related to what happens if all of our workstations are ransomware and, and we, you know, what's a BCDR's response to an event like that and not just treat it like a regular security incident. Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 